Race to Walk Podcast, Episode 28. Welcome to the Raise to Walk Podcast, where we're walking out the life of faith. Romans 6, verse 4 reads, As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And this show is designed to help you do just that. Now here's your host, Carla Alvarez. For the past several days, I've been compiling information on local services for Easter and the Holy Week. Aside from Easter and Christmas Christians, there really are people out there that don't have a church they would feel comfortable walking into if they felt so led. This was just my little contribution by removing one excuse from the equation. I think I've mentioned before that I've always attended churches that were far in the Protestant spectrum of the family of Christ. I did attend a Methodist church for five years, but there were two things that held me back from becoming a member. The first was that I never heard them give an altar call in the service, and the second was that part of the responsive readings included a pledge to the Catholic Church. Now, I realize that Catholic is the Greek word for concerning the whole, I'm just sharing with you this with you so you can get an idea of how completely not about Catholic practices I was. I actually thought Mardi Gras was only a New Orleans event until the place where I live had its its own Mardi Gras for the first year. And I had never heard about Ash Wednesday until all the news stories came out about Rex Santorum attending an Ash Wednesday service during the presidential debates. And I literally did not know what Monday Thursday was. I hadn't even heard of the term until I looked it up this week after seeing all these churches that were having these thir- these services. Now, I knew what the Last Supper was. I just didn't realize that that was what it was referred to and that that's what the services were. So we have all these observances, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday. We use Easter eggs. There's Monday, Thursday. So where did these Easter traditions come from? Even for people outside of the church, you know, it can be confusing. But even some Christians like me who don't know what some of these mean. So in a nutshell, Ash Wednesday is the kickoff to the official countdown to Easter. The day begins the season of Lent, which includes 40 days of fasting, prayer, and repentance ending on Resurrection Sunday. This time is a memory of the 40 days of fasting Jesus spent in the wilderness before he began his ministry. In general, Protestants haven't been really big on set times of repentance, prayer, and fasting. But the spiritual disciplines have always been a big part of the Catholic Church, as well as in denominations more closely aligned with it, such as the Lutherans, Anglicans, and Episcopalians. At the Ash Wednesday service... The sign of the cross is placed on the congregant's forehead and ashes from the previous year's Palm Sunday palm branches. In addition to Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness, throughout the Old Testament, the wearing of sackcloth and ashes has been a sign of repentance and humbling oneself before God, and it was modeled by people such as Job, Daniel, David, and Ezekiel. What Ezekiel's ashes were made of is a question for another day. In reading about the history of Ash Wednesday, 
the early church continued the use of sackcloth and ashes as an outward sign of repentance. Tertullian recommended it to his followers in the early 2nd century, as did Eusebius in the 4th. By the end of the 10th century, the pairing of ashes with the first day of Lent had become a common practice. In researching this, I came across an article explaining the symbolism on a site called Life Teen, and they explained that the ashes represent death to our old nature and that we have new life in Christ, and I really liked that explanation. Monday Thursday is observed in remembrance of Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, otherwise known as the Last Supper. A few of the services mention the stripping of the altar. Again, this was something I had never heard of. This is no longer a practice in the Catholic Church, although it is in denominations such as the Lutherans, Church, Episcopal, and some Methodist churches. This ceremony is in remembrance of Jesus' humiliation at the Garden of Gethsemane at the hands of the Roman soldiers. This is an explanation from the 1913 version of the Catholic Encyclopedia. The Catholic Church actually discontinued this practice in 1955. On Holy Thursday, the celebrant, having removed the ciborium from the high altar, goes to the sacristy. He there lays aside the white vestments and puts on a violet stole, and accompanied by the deacon, also vested in violet stole, and the subdeacon, returns to the high altar. While the antiphon, diversant sibi, and the psalm, Deus, Deus, Maus are being recited, the celebrant and his assistants ascend to the predella and strip the altar of the altar cloths, vases of flowers, antipedium, and other ornaments, so that nothing remains but the cross and the candlesticks, with the candles extinguished. In the same manner, all the other altars in the church are denuded. If there be many altars in the church, Another priest, vested in surplice and violet stole, may strip them while the celebrant is stripping the high altar. The Christian altar represents Christ, and the stripping of the altar reminds us how he was stripped of his garments when he fell into their hands and was exposed naked to their insults. It is for this reason that the psalm Deus Deus Maus is recited, wherein the Messiah speaks of the Roman soldiers dividing his garments among them. This ceremony signifies the suspension of the holy sacrifice. It was formerly the custom in some churches on this day to wash the altars with a bunch of hyssop dipped in wine and water and to render them in some manner worthy of the land without stain who was emulated on them and to recall to the minds of the faithful with how great purity they should assist at the holy sacrifice and receive holy communion. St. Isidore of Seville and St. Egilus of Neon say that this ceremony was intended as an homage offered to our Lord in return for the humility wherewith he dined to wash the feet of his disciples. Traditionally, Good Friday is commemorated as a day of Jesus' death. It is a time of prayer and contemplative remembrance. One of the earliest observances on Good Friday was the Way of the Cross, or Stations of the Cross. The fourteen stations mark the points of Jesus' suffering on his last day on earth, from his condemnation by Pilate to his crucifixion on Calvary. 
According to Catholic tradition, his mother Mary walked the route daily after his death. After Christianity was legalized by Constantine in 312 AD, stations were set up in Jerusalem on the route he walked, also known as Via della Rosa or the Way of Sorrows. By the 4th century, this was a focal point of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem as noted by Jerome. On Saturday, the first celebration of Resurrection Sunday begins with the vigil. As with All Hallows Eve and All Saints Day, where the observance, where the evening service begins the observance, it is rooted in the Jewish custom of the evening as the beginning of the day, which itself comes from Genesis 1-5, which states, And the evening and the morning were the first day. Resurrection Sunday is celebrated as the day Jesus rose from the dead conquering death and claiming victory. This was foreshadowed in the Passover celebration with the command from God to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits on the Sunday, the first day of the week of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The early Christians did not only remember the resurrection once a year. They celebrated it weekly on Sunday, also known as the Lord's Day. John the Beloved was given the visions Recorded in Revelation, as he was praying in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And this is recorded in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Beside the mention in the New Testament are letters from early Christians that confirm the move to Sunday worship in honor of Christ. Martyred in 107 AD, Ignatius of Antioch was a leader, a bishop in the first century church, appointed to the position by the Apostle Peter. There is a tradition that he was the child Jesus brought to his knee as he taught. Whether that is true or just a legend, it is clear that he knew the apostles. He was a leader of the church himself, and he was familiar with their teachings and the practical applications of them. And this is a quote from his letter to the Magnesians. Those, then, who lived by ancient practices arrived at a new hope. They ceased to keep the Sabbath and lived by the Lord's Day, on which our life as well as theirs shone forth thanks to him and his death, though some deny this. Through this mystery we got our faith, and because of it we stand our ground, so as to become disciples of Jesus Christ, our sole teacher. How then can we live without him, when even the prophets who were his disciples by the Spirit awaited him as their teacher? He then, whom they were rightly expecting, raised them from the dead when he came. A little later, in the second century, Justin Martyr also confirms this in his first apology. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness of matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. So, we've just gone through the history of the Easter observances. It's neat, it makes service planning easy, and it fits really well into a long Easter weekend. There's just one problem. Jesus didn't die on a Friday. He was crucified on a Wednesday. So, why does everybody think that Friday is a day, and why do we celebrate it then? I'm not really sure, but I know that this belief started very early. Justin Martyr, in the same letter I quoted above, stated Jesus was crucified on a Friday. And this is a quote from that letter. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, Saturday, and on the day 
after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples. He taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So just because somebody said something, even if it was written a long time ago, it doesn't make it true. What it means is that martyr believed Jesus was crucified on a Friday. It doesn't mean that he actually was. How could somebody so close to the time of Christ be mistaken in the day? I'm not sure about that either, but I, it's obvious to me that there was some confusion in the teachings about the day because in a little later writing known as the Discalia Asporolum, which is uh, supposed to be the teaching of the apostles, the author states that Jesus observed Passover with his disciples on a Tuesday, that he was taken early on Wednesday, and then was crucified on Friday. So the fact that he was taken early the next day after the Last Supper, that lines up with scripture, but the fact that there were two days in between doesn't. But this is a quote from from that writing. But this was on a Wednesday, and he's talking about the day Jesus was taken. For when we had eaten the Passover on Tuesday in this in the evening, we went out to the Mount of Olives, and in the night they took our Lord Jesus. And on the next day, which was Wednesday, he remained in prison in the house of Sepha, the high priest. In that day, the chiefs of the people were assembled, and they took counsel together against him. Again, the next day, which was Thursday, they brought him to Pilate the governor, and again he remained in prison with Pilate. In the night after Thursday, and when it dawned on Friday, they accused him much before Pilate, yet they could show nothing true. But they brought false witness against him, and they asked him from Pilate to put him to death, and they crucified him on Friday. At six o'clock, therefore, on Friday he suffered, and these these hours during which our Lord was crucified, having been reckoned a day, afterwards it was again dark for three hours, and it was reckoned a night, and again from the ninth hour till evening, three hours a day, and again afterwards the night of the Passion Sabbath. It says he was arrested on Wednesday, but it's saying he was held for a couple days. That doesn't line up with the Gospels, which state that Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified the same day. The Pharisees pushed a fast trial because they didn't want the issue hanging over the Feast of Unleavened Breads. So, setting aside what people said and what tradition has been, I want you to think about this. No one except Jesus knew that Judas was planning on betraying him to the Pharisees. We don't even know for sure that Judas knew that the Pharisees had planned to kill him. The death was not expected. Add to that, it was right at the time before one of the biggest holidays of the year. Think about your to-do list in the few days before Christmas. According to the popular time frame, and this I'm saying referring to a Friday crucifixion, Sunday resurrection, Jesus was taken tried, crucified, and buried all within a 24-hour period. That part was scriptural. The next day was the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, during which no work was to be done. But somehow, the women had the supplies and had time to prepare them to anoint his body for burial that Sunday morning. 
So have you ever been in a conversation where someone is making plans and looked at them and said, you have absolutely no idea the time and resources it will take to make what you just said happen? That is exactly what the proposed scenario above is. It was created by men sitting around theorizing who had probably never even prepared a meal, let alone a body, and have absolutely no clue. There is no way, no way at all it happened that way. Without knowing anything else, logically, it makes no sense. They had to bury Jesus in a borrowed tomb because it was close to the crucifixion site and they didn't have time to move his body farther before Passover began, which was at 6 p.m. The women didn't have cars to take them around, super Walmarts are malls for one-stop shopping, and no electricity to aid them in their preparations. If you've ever been without electricity for any length of time, you know exactly how time-consuming just preparing meals is. So with a Friday crucifixion, there was no time to prepare the spices as is mentioned in scripture and was a common burial practice at the time. Now this is a is an excerpt from an overview of burial customs of the day from biblical archaeology. It was the women's task to prepare a dead body for burial. The body was washed and hair and nails were cut. Then it was gently wiped with a mixture of spices and wrapped in linen strips of various sizes and widths. While this was happening, prayers from the scriptures were chanted. The body was wrapped in a shroud but was otherwise uncovered. Tombs were visited and watched for three days by family members and friends. On the third day after death, the body was examined. This was to make sure that the person was really dead, for accidental burial of someone still alive could happen. At this stage, the body would be treated by the women of the family with oils and perfumes. The women's visits to the tombs of Jesus and Lazarus are connected with this ritual. So there was a multi-step process to prepare the body after death, and I thought it was interesting that it was a common practice to revisit the body after the third day to complete the preparations. It's questionable to me whether anyone had time to even do the first phase of preparations on Jesus' body. If the Sabbath the next day began at 6 p.m. and he died at 3 p.m., three hours isn't a lot of time to get the body down, move it, and do elaborate preparations. And then it also talks about the darkness and an earthquake, so there was all that going on too. The women certainly do the preparations then. The scriptures say that they followed, saw, and saw where and how the body was laid. And that's recounted in Luke chapter 23, verse 55. But they weren't part of those preparations themselves. And this was on the day Jesus died. The key to understanding the timeline given in the Gospels regarding the crucifixion and Passover is understanding that there were not one, but two Sabbaths that week. Everyone is familiar with the Jewish custom of observing the Sabbath on the seventh day, on Saturday. That's the weekly Sabbath. However, there are other days, the High Holy Days, which are also regarded as a Sabbath where no work is allowed to be done. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began on Nisan 15, the day after the Passover lamb was sacrificed, is also a Sabbath. If the 15th, if the 15th fell on a Saturday, making it both the weekly and, and the festival Sabbath, then the crucifixion could have been on a Friday. 
However, this goes back to the issue of time. The Gospel of Luke says that the woman prepared the spices. And moving back a day, assuming the crucifixion was on a Thursday, you would still run into the same problem of no time, as then the Friday would have been the High Holy Day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, and the next day, the weekly Sabbath. No work could have been done on either day. Looking at a Wednesday crucifixion, the following day, Thursday, would have been a High Holy Day where no work could have been done. Friday, the women prepared the spices and then rested on the weekly Sabbath. And this is actually what it says in Luke chapter 23, verses 54 through 55. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This passage alone indicates the two Sabbaths. Jesus was laid to rest on the preparation day for the High Holy Day, just as it was about to begin. The women returned home and prepared the spices and perfumes. After that Sabbath, the High the, the High Holy Day that was beginning, mentioned in verse 54, after that was over, and then they rested for the Sabbath. This wouldn't have been done on the Sabbath that was beginning when he was laid in the tomb. There was no time then. The day that they rested on after their preparations would have been the weekly Sabbath this time. So why Friday? Actually, that's a really good question. And it's obvious from the quotes that I mentioned in the early text that there was confusion about this. Justin Martyr lived from 100 to 165 A.D., he was born in Judea in what is now known as the West Bank, and his family was established there during Rome's dominance, and some believe that they were diplomats. He was born after the destruction of the temple. From the first Jewish revolt in 66 AD to the final crushing of the Barcoba revolt in 136 AD, there was a lot of turmoil going on. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and razed. In 131 AD, Hadrian banned Jews from entering Jerusalem. Also keep in mind that there weren't the friendliness of relations between the Jews and the Christians at that time. Actually, there was a lot of outright hostility. Acts 12, 1-4 describes the beginning of the systemic persecutions of the Christians in Jerusalem. Herod killed James, and when he saw how much it pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter. Also, in an effort to flesh out the Christian Jews from the synagogue, the religious leaders introduced prayers into the synagogue services cursing Christians. This was at the time the Sanhedrin, about the same time that the Sanhedrin regathered under the power structure of the Pharisees and redefined what Judaism would be after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and taking it from its focal point of blood atonement according to Leviticus 17.11, with God alone a Savior, referenced in Isaiah 43.11, and eagerly awaiting for the coming of the Redeemer and Messiah, as Job said in Job 19.25, to what became a works-based religion focusing on personal self-righteousness. 
This should be no surprise, considering it was the Pharisees that were the main voice. They were the only one of the main sects of Judaism in the Second Temple period that believed in the Oral Torah, and Jesus was constantly speaking against them for their man-made rules and hypocrisy. They did not acknowledge they were sinners, which is why they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So this regathering, the Council of Jabna, was held around 90 AD, and I often wonder if it was this action and this council that prompted this really strong words in Revelation. And if that was, and this is what is quoted in Revelation, the synagogue of Satan Jesus was referring to, considering the things he said to the Pharisees while he was here on earth, I kind of think it was. And this is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. This is a partial picture of the dynamics of their relationship between Jews and Christians during the first century of Christianity. In light of that, is it such a stretch to believe that Justin Martyr, who was not only a Gentile, but a Roman Gentile, the descendants of the oppressors of the Jews, and those oppressors who were actively crushing the Jewish revolutionaries during that time, and a Christian, one of those they were cursing daily, that he probably really wasn't all that familiar with Jewish customs and feasts other than what was taught through a Jewish or through a Christian context. He was someone on the outside looking in. I'm pretty sure he wasn't sitting down for dinner with Orthodox followers of the reworked Judaism and asking them what their beliefs were. I think he was just stating what he believed, and in his understanding, the Jewish Sabbath referred to Saturday, and that is how he explained it in his apology. So most people who research the historicity of the Bible are familiar with who the Essenes are. They were a devout sect of Judaism during the Second Temple period. Their scroll repository was discovered in Qumran between 1946 and 1956. This discovery was groundbreaking in establishing the reliability of the transmission of the scriptures as well as shedding light on their thought and understanding of different concepts during that time. One of those areas that was illuminated was the differences in religious practices of the sects of Judaism, including the observance of Passover. One thing some skeptics will say is how could the Last Supper have been a Passover cedar when, according to the Gospels, Jesus was dead when it was normally observed? This is actually a really good question and one that doesn't make any sense without an understanding of the dynamics of what was going on. The answer is, all Jews didn't celebrate Passover and all their feast dates on the same day. Just as in the Christian church where the Eastern and Western church churches have different calendars to calculate the date of Easter, the Essenes use a different calendar than the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I came across a really really interesting article on these Essene observances of Passover. Now, if you visit raisetowalk.org slash 28, uh, you'll find a link to this article. And you can read it in full. The author provides support based on evidence discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Last Supper was a Passover Seder observed according to the Essene calculation which was a day before the mainstream Jewish observance. The Essenes used a 364-day solar calendar and calculated their feast by it. 
This solar calendar is also referenced in the book of First Enoch and also in Jubilees. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was that the Essenes calculated their new year by the vernal equinox. So where have we heard that before? Oh yeah, that is how the Christian observance of the calculation of the Paschal Sunday is determined as a set in the Council of Nicaea. The conclusion, Jesus died on a Wednesday. This also eliminates the contortions one has to go through to explain away that Jesus said he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. And one of these references in Matthew 12, verse 40. The arguments I've heard and read explaining how that could be true with a Friday crucifixion is that according to them, there was a Jewish custom of counting parts of days as a day. So he died at the end of Friday, day one, was in the grave all of Saturday, day two, and arose Sunday morning, which is day three. No. This, no, that is just a ludicrous explanation, and it's foundationally dishonest. And it also denies the clear words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he said, For just as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Not partial days. Three 24-hour days. Three days and three nights. That alone should give evidence of a Wednesday crucifixion. So what does it matter? Is this a salvation issue? No, of course not. Salvation is, according to Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Luckily for us, we don't have to be historical scholars or expert theologians to come to Christ. Jesus actually said, as recorded in Matthew 18, verses 3 through 4, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it doesn't matter if you believe he was crucified on a Wednesday or a Friday as long as you believe in the resurrection. And it doesn't matter if you believe in a young earth or one millions of years old as long as you believe in the creator and his salvation, Yeshua. And it doesn't matter what days you celebrate, whether you look at a boiled egg in the middle of a Passover plate or hunt a colored one in your yard, as long as you know that the new life it represents is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. But the point of all of this is that truth matters. Jesus said in John 18 verse 3, You say correctly that I am king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. If we don't care if something is true or not, if we aren't actively and passionately seeking the truth, and if we aren't willing to give up our traditions for the truth, how can we hear his voice? This is a serious concern. Paul warns in Second Thessalonians that the elect, which are the believers, 
are deceived and fall away in the end times because they do not love truth. And that is in Second Thessalonians 2, 10-12. The other reason this matters is in witnessing to truth seekers. Paul gives the following instructions to Christians. In first Peter or I'm sorry, Peter, in first Peter three fifteen, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. There are non believers who have no interest in submitting to Christ or anyone else and argue just to argue. This is a spiritual issue, and it doesn't matter how many words you say or how many answers you have, as long as they resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they will never hear the voice of Jesus. We have to be willing to acknowledge our need for a Savior before we can see it. And Jesus said this himself in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. But there are others who are sincerely looking for the truth. They would like to believe, but they want to know that it is true. How can we claim the truth of Christ while pushing a lie? We all have things that we misunderstand or mistaken in, and I would be shocked to find one growing Christian who believes exactly the same way about ancillary points of doctrine as they did when they first became a Christian. Jesus said in John sixteen thirteen that the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. We learn as we go. But once we have come to a truth he has guided us to, we have to be willing to accept it. If not, we are quenching the Holy Spirit. So go ahead and observe the the sacrifice of our Lord on Friday, but be prepared when someone who is struggling with the logic of a Friday crucifixion to explain it. You can say, well, you know, Jesus really died on a Wednesday, but we observe it on a Friday. It's just a family thing. So what about the Easter eggs? Is it really a pagan fertility rite as Easter bashers claim? Here's the deal. No one really knows where the Easter Bunny and egg story came from. And there's actually, I read a pretty cool article on CNN about the first reference to colored eggs in Germany in the 1600s. One of the theories is that they had to find something to do with all the eggs that were given up for Lent. I kind of think it was a story and activity like candy canes and the story of Santa Claus that people liked and had fun with and it spread, you know, kind of like Elf on a Shelf today. So, as for the various claims that Easter is based on a pagan festival of Ishtar or Yostari, um first, Ishtar has no linguistic association with Easter, even though they sound similar in, in English. Also, if you go to racetowalk.org slash 28, I have a video in, on the article by the History Channel that illustrates that the common element between different countries and cultures is the colored eggs. In countries with a strong German influence, the eggs are delivered by rabbits and others they are delivered by cuckoo birds, foxes, roosters, or storks. So while Easter bashers claim that the festival was based on Eostray, there is there was a mention of it by a monk in 
700 AD, but he actually didn't know. He's just, again, like Justin Martyr was relaying what he thought. And there is no historical evidence of a goddess worship by that name other than this monk. And it took root with anti-Christian fabrications that came later. So we have become so immersed in the neo-pagan propaganda that eggs are part of an ancient fertility rite that most people believe that to be true. However, while rabbits may be associated with fertility, now it doesn't explain the foxes and the storks in some of the other practices in other co- in countries, eggs have historically been associated with new life and specifically resurrection life. I first came across this concept in an article describing the ancient burial practices of the pharaohs of Egypt who would put ostrich eggs in their tombs in the hope of resurrection. Not only were the eggs placed in their tomb, but ancient Egyptians dyed the shells and hung them. The connection between egg, the egg and resurrection can be found through a large swath of cultures. The Greeks and throughout the Mediterranean, Africa, Japan, and China. The connection and hope of resurrection is very strong and it obviously predates any imagined Germanic pagan practices. And this is a quote from an academic paper titled Ostrich Eggs and Peacock Feathers, Sacred Objects as Cultural Exchange Between Christianity and Islam. And this is in the introduction. These avian materials previously possessed symbolic meaning and material value as early as the pre-dynastic period in Egypt as well as amid the early cultures of Mesopotamia and Crete. The main early cultural associations of the eggs and feathers were with death and resurrection and kingship respectively. The feathers were represented kingship a symbolism that was passed on into early Christian and Muslim usage. So I studied marketing in college, and in one of my classes as a project, we had to do an area study on a country, and studying not only the demographic information, but also the history, culture, and the mindset of the people. The country I chose was Greece. And this is the interesting thing about the Greek people. While at one time they were conquerors, They have also been conquered by various nations throughout their history. However, one characteristic that stands out about them is that they resist assimilation by those cultures. Their conquerors become Greeks versus the Greeks becoming one of the conquered. I wonder if this is because of the priority the Greeks placed on seeking knowledge and above knowledge truth that allowed them to stand firm. So even the Jews assimilated a lot of their Greek culture. While researching this topic, I found this quote in a reference to their burial customs. So the Beit Sherem catacombs in the Lower Galilee, in both the earlier and latter cases, members of the Jewish elite participated in the general funerary architecture of their times. In fact, one would be hard-pressed to distinguish the distinctly Jewish from the general late Hellenistic and Roman funerary architecture. And even the specifically Jewish elements may well be seen within the contours of the general practice. 
Perhaps the most interesting in both first century Judea and at Beit Shurim are the ways in which Jews chose to express their distinctiveness by adopting and adapting well-known Greco-Roman models. There was a lot of assimilation in the Jewish culture, from the renaming of the months to the names of the Babylonian gods during the exile, changing the silver year to begin in the seventh month, which no one exactly knows why, to adapting the language of those around them. Those from the Babylonian exile spoke Aramaic, the Hellenists spoke Greek, and to adapting their and putting their own flavor on the funeral customs on those of their conquerors. Yes, Jesus lived on earth as a Jewish man and fulfilled his role as a Jewish Messiah, being the only man who was be able to f fulfill and have victory over the bondage of the law. However, if you want to truly understand the world Jesus lived in and who he spoke to, you have to remember that he was born to Jewish parents in a country ruled by Rome, and a people who spoke Aramaic adopted from the Babylonian captivity and used the language of the Greeks to communicate. All of these cultures influenced them, and there was no such thing as this cohesive, pure, Hebraic culture that some people like to promote. So, would the egg have had the same meaning to them of resurrection life as those in the cultures around them? Absolutely. They were in Egypt for 400 years. Every Mediterranean culture had this association. The Passover Seder that was instituted in the 13th century AD, and this is by Kabbalistic rabbis, uses an egg as a symbol of new life and in replacement of the temple sacrifice. So I found this article on the symbolism of the egg in the Passover Seder, and this is on... Uh, on a Chabad.org, and I found this really awesome illustration in a comment on the article, and this is a qu quote from it. There is even more about the egg. The hen, the egg comes from the hen, Targonalet in Hebrew, and from the egg comes out a chick, Ifroa in Hebrew. Targonalet is written with a tav and Ifro with an aleph. The last and the first letters of the alphabet. The egg is a necessary link between the old life finishing with the Tav and the new life starting with the Aleph. The egg is also used as a morning sign, the end of a life and the beginning of a new eternal life in the world to come. Yes, exactly, a beginning of a new eternal life, which is what we have when we come to Christ. And, by the way, the Tav in the Paleo-Hebrew was actually the sign of a cross. So, yes, at the cross we come to new life. So, back to the Greeks, Easter and eggs. One custom that I found when researching the country was the practice of dyeing eggs red during the Easter Pasha celebration. I have a Greek friend who still does this with her family. An explanation of the symbolism as well as instructions for dyeing eggs traditionally is found in this uh, in a hub on greekfoodonabout.com and this is a quote. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but red eggs pronounced kokina avga is perhaps one of the brightest 
symbol of Greek Easter, representing the blood of Christ and rebirth. So it's rebirth and resurrection combined with the blood of Christ. And this is another quote from the Greek reporter. These eggs are used early Easter morning as the day is dawning. Each person has a red egg and cracks it saying, Christ is risen. The cracked egg symbolizing the tomb that was opened at the resurrection of Christ. A tradition of the early church was that like St. Patrick, who used the shamrock as an evangelism tool, Mary Magdalene used an egg in hers. There are a couple versions of the accounts of this. Here is one of the versions. There is a tradition which makes Mary Magdalene to be the originator of the custom of using red eggs on Easter Day. After the ascension of our Lord, Mary Magdalene went to Rome to preach the gospel, and appearing before the Emperor Tiberius, she offered him a red egg, saying, Christ is risen. Thus was begun her preaching. Learning about this offering of Mary Magdalene, the early Christians imitated her, presenting each other with eggs. Hence, eggs began to be used by Christians in the earliest centuries as a symbol of the resurrection of Christ and of the regeneration of Christians for a new and better life along with it. The custom of presenting each other with red eggs was familiar to the Christians of the earliest universal church. Another more colorful version of the same story is this. A different but not necessarily conflict conflicting legend concerning Mary Magdalene's efforts to spread the gospel. According to this tradition, after the ascension of Jesus, Mary went to the emperor of Rome and greeted him with Christ has risen, whereupon he pointed to an egg on his table and stated, Christ has no more risen than that egg is red. After making this statement, it is said that the egg immediately turned blood red. So my hope is that this inspires you to continue to always seek the truth and to learn more about the roots of our faith. Not only what people say, but what really is as best as as certain. Always keeping in mind that the players in the early church and throughout the last 2,000 years were humans just like us. They had their prejudices and their misunderstandings, but while they may have been off in a couple of areas, just as we are ourselves at times, it doesn't mean that they weren't all out for Jesus. Many of them were martyred, sometimes the most brutal deaths for their faith, just as we are seeing in the Middle East and Kenya just this week. They had a faith that stands. Also, I hope that if you have been coming up against people condemning you for the way you celebrate the victory of our Lord using tired and bogus information, that This information will be an encouragement and provide some support for combating the Antichrist spirit because that is exactly what it is. Don't let anyone steal your joy in the celebration of Jesus and your family fellowship. Christ is risen. From Luke 24, 1-5 But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. 
If you'd like to read more about the articles I referenced in this episode, you can visit raisetowalk.org forward slash 28. And on that article, I have links to the articles I mentioned, as well as a whole list of other references on the topic. So now let's end with a prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us and help each one of us to fully, as much as we can understand, to fully understand the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross and help us understand the power in the cross and in the blood he shed and in the resurrection of Christ, that we truly are new creatures in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life as followers of Christ. Help us turn all of our stuff over to you. And as David said in Psalm 51, in his prayer for salvation, create in us a clean heart, renew a loyal spirit within us, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. And I ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Raised to Walk podcast. We'd love for you to continue to walk with us, so head over to raisedtowalk.org slash news to get free updates. Have a blessed day, and we'll see you next time. If you've been enjoying the Raised to Walk episodes, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We also love to get feedback from our listeners, so tell us what you think by either rating or reviewing us on iTunes or Stitcher, or by sending us an email at contact at raisetowalk.org. We're excited to have you join us again next time for another episode of Raised to Walk.